house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. Welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that shot a pilot. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my angel of death, but make it an actress, Joe Reed. My name is Hap. I am (laughs) the most intuitively... Uh, hap-looking person you've ever seen. I per- I personally, Joe Reed, look far more like a hap than Audrey Hepburn. It's just endlessly funny <laughs> to me that that's what you would call. And I know that, like, originally it was supposed to be maybe somebody else. Um, uh, shoot, I was looking at the trivia earlier, and um, I I know I uh, Redford and and Paul Newman were originally um. Uh, in in contention for one of them being Pete and one of them being Ted, and they both wanted to be Pete. So the so the story goes, both wanted to be Pete. They couldn't agree on it, and so they both were out. Um, but who was originally? I mean, I think if either of them were the lead role, it would solve a lot of this movie's problems. Sure, we'll talk about it because this. I came around on this movie by the end of it, somewhat surprisingly. I me. did too. Okay, I'm glad. We'll talk about it. it okay, was, so wait, I... it was, just to complete my thought though, it was Sean Connery yes, who was originally supposed to uh, intended to play the Audrey Hepburn role, who fits more into a hap situation than Audrey Hepburn. Although I'm glad because. But we got Audrey Hepburn because obviously her final role. It's in a Spielberg movie. It's not in She's one in of the giant sweater. Ones. She's just in the other tidbit that I saw was that she had to be carried on a stretcher to the set. Be- oh god. No, no, that's what I thought too. Because they couldn't didn't want to get ash or soot or anything on her white her, she's, on her perfect. she's in such gleaming perfect white that they didn't she's wanna... basically anthropomorphized cashmere yes. in this movie yes. Uh, she's yes she's in what she has two scenes in the movie yes she gets special appearance special by appearance credit. by audrey Hepburn. bring that back yes yeah um she also donated her entire salary to unicef uh, per trivia, which she was so well known for being a UNICEF ambassador. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, 
it's... just talked about her being a UNICEF ambassador on Kevin, friend and former guest Kevin Jacobson's podcast, and the runner-up is talking about the 1959 Best Actress race when she was nominated for a nun story or the nun story, Very not good. just one nun. She was the she nun. was the nun. <laughs> yes. Uh, listeners, go back and listen to that. I'm also talking about Suddenly Last Summer. That remi- I know you want to hear that. That reminds me of the Margaret Cho joke uh, from one of her specials about how her mom would ask, uh, she'd bring her gay friends over and she would ask, she'd be like, Scott called, is he the gay? And she's yeah. like, well, God, mom, I don't know if he's the gay doing the entire parade all by himself. It's a good joke. <laughs> oh, I love Margaret Cho. Okay. Um, uh, always. Back to always, though. This is a very intriguing pick. It's one of our older movies that we've done. We don't dip into the 80s too terribly often because it's sort of outside our frame of reference. But this was a Spielberg movie. It opened right around Christmas. It opened, I think it's, I looked, I watched, as I tend to do sometimes with the movies of this time period, I watched the Siskel and Ebert that it did, and it was the same Siskel and Ebert as Born on the Fourth of July. Mm-hmm. So um, that sort of orients you as to where it was on the calendar. It's the Back rare. Back to the Future Two was in theaters. Yeah. Um, what What else did I see was opening at this Christmas window? It's like you can kind of see why Always would have gotten gobbled up. Um, oh, Christmas Vacation, War of the Roses, which I would love for us to talk about sometime. Yes. Um, wait, let me find what else was on that Siskel and Ebert, because it was a really interesting uh, one. Oh, Tango and Cash is the other one I was thinking of. Yes. Oh, boy. Uh, Tango and Cash, born on the 4th of July, always. We used to be a country. Um, <laughs> the rare Spielberg... Um, flop mostly because like if in in the sort of the annals of his filmography there are certain ones that are sort of decided upon by everybody that were the failures to some degree 1941 is one of them the terminal is one of them the bfg is sort of emerging as one of them and the very few movies which like we talked about in our terminal episode very few movies even the ones that weren't successful mm-hmm. very few spielberg movies that receive zero oscar nominations right. this one is kind of i i guess i get it it's also i mean we're going to get into it it's also the same year as uh indiana jones and the last crusade so it's like yes there's the whole like two first spielberg oscar years he's kind of even though he is it's interesting that his reputation had been so sort of set by this point as the sort of big adventure spectacle guy, even though the color purple was only four years before this, but the color purple mm-hmm. was also its own, you know, genre of discussion. And, and that almost feels like separate from everything else that he did because so much of that discussion was about, was he the right person to make this and, and all this sort mm-hmm. of stuff. But which probably led to him not being nominated for best director that year. Right. But I mean, we're also talking about a period for Spielberg too. If you exclude his Thalberg award, that Spielberg still doesn't have an Oscar too. And mm-hmm. like Spielberg's early Oscar history is kind of like, right. Uh, n- not fraught. Fraught makes it sound like, you know, there's more than just petty Oscar drama. But, like, back and forth of not getting Best Picture or Best Director nominations, there's, of course, the famous video of, they gave it to Fellini! Like, yeah. you know, uh, 
during the Jaws year. I was looking up loan director stats recently, and he, every time Spielberg has been loan directored, it's been for, like, when he wasn't nominated for The Color Purple, we just mentioned, the loan director that year was Kurosawa. You know what I mean? It was yeah. just like, and I think one time it was uh, uh, Bergman, too, when he was loan directored out for what would it have been? It would have been... Um, I'm trying to think of now. Because Close Encounters, he did get the nomination, right? Yes, but it was not nominated for Best Picture. Right. Um, Raiders, he's nominated for Best Director. Yes, and same for E.T. Then Color Purple, it's 85, which is, like right. I mentioned, Kurosawa for Ron. Uh, so then it's a, he's only been loan directed out twice then. And I guess, but it's just interesting that it's Fellini and Kurosawa, you know what I mean? Especially knowing Spielberg right. as, like, the, you know, student of film history which well and you get later in the years because he wasn't nominated for director for war horse right but then you get into like the top 10 years it's so it's so hard to decide to figure out what counts as a snub there like you know what i mean war horse was never really considered one of the top five of that uh class but we're getting into interpretation even though as i have said before and said again on our text chat this week uh war horse should have won best picture that year given the competition (laughs) and uh that's all there is to it um but interesting though uh, sort of bringing it into the sort of the old masters and whatnot a lot of his inspiration for making always was he was so enamored of the uh, original film which was sorry i wrote this down. a guy named joe right what is it? a guy named joe 1944 yeah. directed by victor fleming written by uh dalton trumbo this was a uh uh, perhaps a bathtub special. We don't know. Um, uh, Screenplay nominee at the Oscars. Spencer Tracy, Irene Dunn. I watched the trailer for it. Uh, Lionel Barrymore is in it, and it really underlines the fact that I cannot see Lionel Barrymore in anything without. It's just like it's just Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. I'm very sorry. I am. Uh, Oh, gosh. Wow, that's weird. When I said Lionel Barrymore, literally the program that I have from my grandfather's memorial service in 2013, like, fell down. Like, I don't know what that's about at all. Oh. Um, but anyway. Uh, we have a, a secret guest uh, on this episode. <laughs> grandpa, it's your grandfather. My grandpa. Maybe he was a big Lionel Barrymore fan. Who knows? Maybe he liked uh, uh, he a guy named Joe. He has strong opinions about always. The tagline for a guy named Joe, by the way, I had to write it down. Because uh, like I said, I watched the trailer. Uh, the story of a guy, a gal, and a pal. Which I've seen that pornography. So, like, listen. <laughs> um, you can't talk about that in front of your grandfather. I know. Um <laughs> forgive me um but the the story goes that like spielberg really loved this movie dreyfus apparently really loved this movie saw it like they talked about it on the set of jaws they talked about it on the set of jaws so much of like everything about spielberg does feel like lore that's why i always just like as the story goes because like and maybe this is after seeing the fablemans that i feel like this way too like everything that spielberg has done or like the stories of his career all feels like the kind of tall tales you tell about like paul bunyan or whatever like that and (laughs) um you know i don't know who knows how my uh, feeling when i read that was like okay but how many other movies were they talking about this is also the thing right it's It's not like they planned always on the set of jaws i'm sure there were like 50 other movies that they had in each other's lexicon right that they were talking about um Um, the 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 ties between uh 
the cast and 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 obviously Spielberg of this movie is something I want to get into later because uh, how much they worked together again or didn't work together again, as it were, mm-hmm. um, will be really interesting to talk about. I'm glad that to hear you say that you came around on this movie by the end too. This was a movie. I think I mentioned this. Oh no, we're recording out of order, so I mentioned this on our Lost City of Zed episode. Will be next week. Maybe I'm spoiler. Spoiling. Oh well, listen. Uh, if you haven't figured it out by now, bonus for listening to this episode. Um, uh, it's uh, next week's episode too. Looking at the timeline, I wonder who might be joining us for this knows? episode. Um, but anyway, I think I mentioned uh, when we were talking uh, with our guest for that episode that I had seen um, always when I was young. Like I was mm-hmm. probably. 13 12 years old this might have been one of those the vhs's that my aunt had when we would go and sleep over at my aunt's house um so i remember watching it had no frame of appreciation for it i'm sure i found it terribly boring at the time i really didn't retain a whole lot about it beyond the fact that it was airplanes and richard dreyfus and holly hunter um and then watching richard dreyfus as a ghost right I don't even know if I retained that much of it. Like, once I read the logline, I was like, right, 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 he's a ghost. I also want to talk about that, like, this era of I was going to say, movies. like, this movie comes out, like, the year before Ghost, and it's like, it's like, uh, Jerry Sucker, or what, Jeff Sucker, whichever Jerry fucking Sucker, sucker Jerry made Sucker, yeah. Ghost, who, uh, whoever was like, what is this movie missing? Yes. We'll Comic be- relief friend that knows he's a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, Watching it again, also pottery. I started it and I was like, I don't know, man. Like, I don't know if this romance is working for me. I don't know if, like, it really kind of, like, meanders to, like, get to the point where it really starts to be the movie that it's about. And by the end of it, I was he like... He doesn't die until, like, a half hour into the movie. Right. By the end of it, I'm really invested. I I really love Holly Hunter's performance in this movie, and we'll get into that. Yeah. But like, I find myself way more invested in her and Dreyfus together than I thought I was uh, at the beginning part of the movie. We'll talk about Ted. Ted's his own sort of like <laughs> issue. Um, I wanted to. I, I one of the things that I had forgotten to follow through with is I wanted to read more about that actor Brad Johnson because literally the f- top line of his Wikipedia bio an is introducing credit. American actor, model, real estate agent, and Marlboro man, which like that's a hell of a uh I imagine So wait, was he the Marlboro man? He and, like, was that's his claim to fame to getting this role. He I imagine by he was the guy in the ads, the sort of the man no. in the Marlboro man uh ads. Uh one of them at least. Um so I all I remember Marlboro Man ads are were like pages in like Sports Illustrated or whatever. Yeah, right? a dude in Wrangler jeans right. smoking in a cowboy. You couldn't hat. advertise. Mm-hmm. I still don't think you can. Obviously, uh, cigarettes on television. I don't think you could even back when I was a kid. Uh, you could at some point, like Don Draper was making ads, you know, for someone at some point. Eventually, you couldn't put cigarette ads in magazines right. anymore. But that's what I, I at least remember the era of, and cigarette ads Joe Camel. <laughs> were everywhere in magazines. Joe Camel, the Marlboro right. Man, um, all those fabulous ladies with their Virginia Slims, all those sort of Newports ads where it was like a woman in like a bathing suit or whatever with yep. like a Newport or whatever. 
All of them. Listeners who are too young to remember cigarette ads in magazines. Imagine, like, yogurt ads, you know, very lifestyle. Look at this hip woman living her life. Yes. They stole that, essentially, from cigarette ads. There were cigarette ladies, ads were like, ladies I have a great lifestyle. My life is so easy. Marlboro 100s, I remember. That was a brand that my grandma smoked, were the Marlboro 100s, which were the sort of longer, th- skinnier Sort of yeah. like the Virginia Slims of Marlboro, right? When I did smoke, when I was a very casual smoker, usually I would just sort of bum cigarettes off of people. But on like the rare occasions that I would buy packs of cigarettes, I would buy Marlboro Lights. That was sort of my, like, I don't know why. Who the hell knows? Um, but uh, yeah, the magazines would be like really, really sort of chock full. And you had your, again, like the the more female centric ones were the Virginia Slims and the Newports and whatnot. And then your really masculine uh, cigarette ads were like the Marlboro Reds and Winston cigarettes, I remember being a thing. Which like had very sort of like stark. Uh, it was just like logo stamped on a, uh, you know, stamped in scarlet. <laughs> On a magazine page. They were everywhere, yeah. So good for uh, Brad Johnson, which is also, like, Brad Johnson was is the name of a, a quarterback who was, like, the blandest quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and won a Super Bowl. So, like, truly, like, that name is giving me nothing. Quarterbacks are bland. <laughs> Just, girl, give us nothing. We'll get into it, for sure. Yeah, we'll get it. Okay, we need, we'll need to loop back here because yeah. that introducing credit. Um Always. Always. I, okay, I can't really say that I think it's a great movie. No. But given its reputation, like, nobody nobody talks about this movie at all when talking exactly. about Spielberg. I feel like it's probably seen as his biggest failure ever. Oh, but at the I same think time, 1941 feels like the, the flop that stands out. That's certainly his biggest creative failure, yeah. I think, because it's like it's this pivot. Critics hated that. that. Like, they like, were really mad at that one. He's not, he's it's, I mean, like, uh, again, we'll get into it if we talk about the Fablemans, but like, Spielberg is not bad at comedy. No. But like, that is such a broad, farcical comedy that, from my memory of it, I haven't seen it in years, doesn't work. But like, the trailer lo- it looks like a, it looks like Stripes. It looks like a John Landis movie. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think always or an is Ivan safely the biggest non entity within Spielberg's, uh, you know, filmography. Yeah. I, yeah. I think as far as like a financial failure, and obviously Sugarland Express doesn't count. Right. It's before Jaws. It's his lowest grossing movie. Yeah. But aside uh, ruling out Sugarland Express, his lowest grossing movie is Empire of the Sun, mm-hmm. which is like a movie I've gone to bat for. I a lot of people do. A lot of people go to the bat for that movie. Yeah. But like that movie lives on basically in perpetuity on HBO Max. Mm-hmm. Like it's like they take it away for a month and immediately bring it back. Right. It's just like always there. Right. And like I do think that's a good movie it's a kind of a flawed movie people it's... stick up for the terminal too like that one is mainly seen as a flop but like there are definitely people who like will stick up for that movie and will bring it up or like the terminal's a punchline for some people sure too right but like yeah no one talks about always at all it's really really glossed over yeah yeah it'll be interesting Especially to talk about for that reason this is yeah like I, I also it definitely want... deserves more consideration than it's given i will say yeah yeah i agree I, I was surprised to glance over the letterbox logs for this movie though and see that people like who have seen it hate hate it really like i can understand pointing out its flaws and stuff but like i don't know i think 
I don't know if it's worth that much ire. I will say I I it doesn't surprise me that from a 2022 perspective that people perhaps like within our sort of circle of taste would look at that movie and just like really really hate the Richard Dreyfus character. Like Richard Dreyfus has mm-hmm. such like a reputation for being a difficult actor and he hasn't really worked in anything that would appeal to younger audiences in decades, right? And so that is an actor who then, when you see this guy, who's an abrasive character at times, and certainly it's this very kind of older older Hollywood type where he and and Holly Hunter have this relationship where, like, he's a hotshot and she doesn't like it, and he gives her shit and she gives him back and, uh, and that kind of thing. And that kind of we've kind of been conditioned out of appreciating that kind of a movie and so with that character in the guise of a richard dreyfus i can see people watching this and being like fuck this guy i mm-hmm. do not want to watch a movie about this character at all i don't care if he gets into heaven or whatever the fuck he's supposed to be doing like audrey hepburn can have him and you know whatever so um i i, I ultimately think that there's kind of a more complex relationship going on in that love story I than agree. like it appears on the surface like and Again, not we tend to do this, but like not to jump ahead to the ending, but like mm-hmm. I almost feel like the note that we're left with on that relationship as he like lets her go as a ghost and like delivers this whole old fashioned monologue to yeah. her that he's like, I don't know if you can hear me, but blah blah blah. The impression that I think you're left with is that it's two people who loved each other and he did love her even though he was a bit of a bastard. But, like, the impression is they wouldn't have ultimately worked out. Right. Which I think is much more interesting for a movie like this, Mm -hmm. you know? That it's not, like, the great love of your life visiting you as a ghost, but, like... To have somebody leave you in that way, when you were sort of in the throes of one of, like, the most passionate phase of a romance, which is... You imagine, like, they were on the cusp of maybe getting married. She, you know, they had this really intense relationship that did all involve, you know, arguing, but also was, like, the spark was definitely really there in that relationship. Mm -hmm. And to lose somebody at that height of the relationship, it makes sense that she would have such a hard time moving on from that. And so that's so much of what the movie's about. Also, speaking of the ending, now that you've opened that Pandora's box, and I... (laughs) The Fablemans, by the time this movie comes out, this episode comes out, has The Fablemans opened? Uh, Limited release. Okay. So, but not everybody has seen The Fablemans yet, so I don't want to, like, go too far into it. But did you notice the last shot of the movie and the way it related to the end of The Fablemans? Yes, I did. And did you notice where things are positioned in the movie and i was like curious interesting in relation to this thread exactly i thought about in certain uh certain moments of always that i was like "Hmm." horizons at the center okay 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 yeah right 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 yeah yeah. um i thought a lot i i as I was watching it, and I didn't realize until after I went back, I was thinking about uh, Kurosawa's dreams, like specifically the Hepburn scenes, uh-huh. but that actually didn't come out until after this movie. Um, 
And I think that's one of the Kurosawas that Spielberg had a hand in, like, producing or, like, helping get made. So, like, maybe he was ripping off Kurosawa before This was his revenge for that Ron nomination, getting instead of Color Purple, Um, yeah. Um, I'm excited to talk about this movie, though. Should we... uh, Let's get into it. Let's let's do the the, Let's get into it. Uh, Listeners, Garys, we are here talking about Always, directed by none other than Steve, Steven Spielberg. (laughs) Uh, written by Jerry Belson, starring Richard Dreyfus, Holly Hunter, John Goodman, Audrey Hepburn, Brad Johnson, Keith David, and none other than Mark Helgenberger. Oh, I did yeah. the full Leo pointing at the TV thing when she showed up. Yeah. Movie opened uh, December 22nd of 1989. I was a wee two and a half year old baby. Mark Helgenberger, this would have been, she would have been on China Beach at the time, I feel like, right? Like, I feel like that show was. I don't know what still China happening. Beach is. China Beach was a television show that, like, that's what Dana Delaney has her two Emmy Awards for. Um, cool. It was about nurses in a unit in, v- in the Vietnam War. And it was, like, Dana Delaney and Marg Helgenberger. <laughs> Who else was in this? Hold on a second. I want to get... Because I remember the cast being, like... That was one of those shows that I was too young to, like, watch it. But I think, like, my mom watched it at the very least. Um, and it was pretty popular. It went for about maybe, like, four seasons. It did. I wonder if my mom watched it. Because my mom was born during the Vietnam War when my... Mom's family was stationed in Japan. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, went from 1988 to 1991. So yeah, Mark Helgenberger was definitely on the show. Dana Delaney, uh, Michael Boatman was on the show. Conchetta Tomei, who was, um, uh, if you know the, the mom from Don't Tell Mom, The Babysitter's Dead, among other things. She's sort of character right. actress. Chloe Webb was on that show from, uh, Nancy from Sid and Nancy. Um, uh interesting interesting cast interesting show like i said dana delaney won two emmys when i did my little piece after angela lansbury died sort of like talking about her emmy uh history and you talk about all of the i think it was only like i think i can't remember the exact i think it's like only five women beat angela lansbury for that Emmy. It was like a like a lot of them won like dana delaney won two patricia wedding from 30 something won two um Kathy Baker from Picket Fences won three. It was just like a lot of, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, women winning multiples. And Dana Delaney was two of those. Um, Anyway, yeah. Mark Helgenberger. Lover. (laughs) Always. Joseph, are you ready to give a 60-second plot description of always? Sure. Are you always ready? I'm always ready. I stay ready. All right. Then your 60-second plot description for the motion picture always starts now. All right. Richard Dreyfuss plays Pete, a hotshot pilot who works as an aerial firefighter, and Holly Hunter is Dorinda, his girlfriend and air traffic controller. Their relationship is prickly but deeply felt, and she really resents the chances he takes while flying. One day, Pete risks it all to save the life of his best friend Al, played by John Goodman, and Pete's plane explodes and he dies, welcomed into the afterlife by a luminous Audrey Hepburn, whose character's name is Hap because Audrey Hepburn just looks like a Hap. She sends him back as a ghost, essentially, to help Ted, an amiable loaf of bread who is Pete's replacement in every sense of the word, applying for Pete's old pilot job and cautiously beginning a romance with Dorinda. Pete more, 30 seconds. Pete's more enthusiastic about helping Ted with the former than the latter. Dorinda and Ted get closer, and Pete at first tries to keep them apart, but Hap reminds him that his purpose is to help Ted and also help Dorinda move on. It's easier said than done, but when an especially dangerous forest fire sees Ted planning to embark upon the same kind of reckless rescue mission Pete would have attempted, Dorinda hops onto a, into a plane and flies into the blaze herself, with ghost, ghostly Pete guiding her. She saves a group of stranded firefighters, and then Pete finally says all the things he never said to her, and then after Dorinda makes a water landing, she makes a choice to move on with her life, embracing Ted, while Pete walks off into the horizon in a way John Ford might have found a little bit boring. And that's boring. time. 
That's always. It's always. So, Holly Hunter made it nice. <laughs> okay, we need to talk about this. This is the first time <laughs> since Dorinda Medley joined the cast of Real Housewives of New York City that I've seen a character named Dorinda in a film or a television. And it's literally all I could think of was just <laughs> Sonia Morgan yelling, where's Dorinda? You know, that's all, that's that's in the back of my head. Whenever Holly Hunter's not on screen in this show, I'm just yelling, where's Dorinda? Um an unusual name. I think it was also the name of the Irene Dunn character in uh, a guy named Joe. So that, sound, that sounds quite possible. Um, John Goodman asks her after Richard Dreyfus dies how she's holding up, and he sa- she says, "Not, not well, bitch." Not well. <laughs> uh, she tells him to close that Holland Tunnel. Okay. Um, yes. <laughs> God, what a nightmare woman! Uh, with a haunted house in the Berkshires that uh, she draws people to, like a witch in the in the gingerbread house <laughs> in the middle of a, in the middle of the woods. Just come. To Did my you see phone. the new Hellraiser? I did not. I, I've only ever seen the, the new first Hellraiser, Hellraiser is set time. in the Berkshires. Is it really? It's about Dorinda Medley. Yeah, yeah. It's it's Real Housewives Ultimate Girls Trip. Is it uh, the Hellraiser. Berkshires? It's set somewhere that's like yeah. noted Real Housewives location. Yeah, that's um. So. I want to talk about Holly Hunter to start because I really love her in this movie. And I think this phase of Holly Hunter's career, which, you know, late eighties, she gets the broadcast news nomination. She is such a fascinating screen presence. Just her energy on Mm -hmm. screen is so incredibly alive and peculiar and, her sense of interacting romantically or even like not not like or like her relationship with John Goodman's character as just like friends is really interesting and she just makes Yeah, Holly Hunter's incapable of being less than interesting. Just like, totally fascinating and I like it's not like she didn't work a lot. She worked pretty steadily, but even I watched this and I was like After I wish- that broadcast news nomination, like she's in a ton of different things, but the thing is, this is the least weird of them. <laughs> That's so like I I feel like the through line almost begins with Raising Arizona, which is the same mm-hmm. year as broadcast news. But like that feels like tonally Obviously, Raising Arizona is a lot more heightened and a lot more absurd, but like, mm-hmm. there's not an inconsiderable amount of Ed from Raising Arizona in her character in all ways, weirdly enough. Um, gets the best they actress. Both have mullets. What's that? They both have mullets. They both have mullets. Uh, broadcast News, she gets the best actress nomination. She loses to Cher. I'm not going to complain about that, but that was a best actress year where you could have given that one to multiple of the nominees and it would have been right. just and right. Like Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction winning would have been perfect and holly hunter winning for broadcast news would have been great my winner um share winning for moonstruck i wouldn't trade for the world though and i'm glad that that happened um after broadcast news she's in a trio of movies in 1989 one of them is miss firecracker which i've never seen but i take it you have no I oh, just, okay i looked at the log line and i was like this movie called miss firecracker thomas schlamy directed it wow. thomas schlamy who directed a bunch of uh, especially early west wing sort of was very instrumental in the look and vibe of west the west wing married to christine lottie um uh much more prolific as a television director than a film director um but that movie was also written by beth henley who wrote the play crimes of the heart 
that won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, if you've seen Crimes of the Heart, I've only seen the movie. I've never seen that on stage, but like it's some wild shit. Anyway, <laughs> she's in a movie called Animal Behavior that I sent you the trailer of this morning because it just looks so odd. It's about <laughs> Karen. It's a romance between Karen Allen and Armand Asante, where she. Where they both, they all work with chimpanzees to communicate with chimpanzees. And she's teaching them sign language and he's like playing the cello for them. And Holly Hunter is like another character who is like teaching them friendship or something. Like, I don't know, man. It looks super weird and I've never seen it, but it also looks like there were just like, there were a lot of comedies back then that were just sort of like, uh, you know, that existed. I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. Describe that. What was it in the eighties of us needing to like communicate or be animals because it's like it belongs in like the Paul Schrader cat people cinematic well, universe. Well, and it's the next year after Gorillas in the Mist, and so I yeah. wonder if they were like Gorillas in the Mist. If that intrigued you about what about a comedy Gorillas in the Mist? <laughs> um, and then Always is the third movie she makes in nineteen eighty nine. Then in nineteen ninety one, it's her next movie. She's Back together with Richard Dreyfus in a movie called Once Around, a movie that both neither Siskel or Ebert, Ebert liked always very much. They both actually kind of liked Once Around, and it's like a January release, so it's only like 13 months after Always. And so it's Holly Hunter and Richard Dreyfus again, except in this one, he's playing a character. He in real life is like 11 years older than Holly Hunter, but like he's playing a character who's older than Holly Hunter. She plays a little bit younger. He plays a little bit older. Now all of a sudden his hair is white and he's sort of this eccentric guy romancing Holly Hunter. And she's like the... um uh, Nia Vardalos in My Big Fat Creek Wedding, the older sister who hasn't been, uh, who hasn't gotten married. Isn't she the older sister in Big Fat Creek Wedding? Maybe she's not. Yes. No, she's the younger sister in that then movie. Then forget what I just said. Anyway. Yeah, because her older sister, her older perfect sister, Athena, has a bunch of, of children. And- anyway, though, this is an Italian-American family where, like, the dad is Danny Aiello, and the mom is Jenna Rollins, and the sister is Laura San Giacomo, and Holly Hunter is unmarried, and then she meets this weird, eccentric... uh uh guy in the Caribbean played by Richard Dreyfus, and none of the family likes him, and it's just this sort of like comedy of manners or whatever, directed by Lassa Hallstrom, who was sort of post My Life as a Dog, pre um was there Cider House. I was gonna say, was there anything before the Cider House rules that sort of uh indicated that sort of run of his? Yeah. So anyway, um just an interesting movie that I'd never really heard of until I was doing this research. And it was just interesting that they made a movie, they made two consecutive movies together as a romantic couple. I did also send you the clip of when Holly Hunter won her Oscar and they cut to a shot of Anna Paquin in the audience and you can see Richard Dreyfus like two rows behind mm-hmm. her, uh, seemingly, uh, you know, happy for, uh, I, he's, he's, Again, somebody with a reputation for not getting along with people on sets. So I didn't want to like read too much into it, but it, it, no, it's interesting that they, you know, were romantic partners in films more than once. Yeah. Considering his reputation. And then she's not in anything after Once Around until her double Oscar nominated performances in 93 with The Piano, which she wins for, and then The Firm, which she is nominated for in Supporting Actress. And then. I wrote when I first started at the Atlantic Wire, I wrote an article about how we sort of we being 
the American movie going public, but also like Hollywood sort of failed Holly Hunter as a leading actress because Mm -hmm. after the piano, she gets like, she's the lead in copycat. She's the lead in home for the holidays, both really interesting movies that you should go and watch. Um, Crash, uh, the, the, the Cronenberg crash is, you know what it is. There was a ceiling on how mainstream that was ever going to be, but like, I'm really glad she made it, but she's not like the lead of that movie. No. Um, Living Out Loud is really the only lead role that she would get for kind of the rest of her career in film. Good movie, Very good movie. But, like... She has a fantasy dance sequence. She wins the Academy Award in 1993, and then she has three lead roles for the rest of her career in Hollywood. And that's wild to me. And, like, it's just... And I remember one of the most, like, flattering things. She was interviewed for something i don't remember what it would have been maybe for the big sick i think when she was making the rounds and doing interviews for the big sick someone brought up that interview or that article that i wrote about how you know hollywood failed holly hunter and they were like what do you think about that and i was like oh god please don't let her be offended by this or whatever and she was just like that's a really interesting question you tell me and i was like yeah holly hunter like fuck it. <laughs> um but it's just it's this uh and she was okay so like 2016, she's in an indie movie called Strange Weather. Uh, uh, she is the lead of that. But in general, she is a supporting actress from then on, from Living Out Loud mm-hmm. on. Jesus is Son, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, Moonlight Mile, which we've talked about. Oscar nominated for 13, nearly Oscar nominated for The Big Sick. Um, She's in sort of really indie movies like Nine Lives. She's, of course, the voice of Helen Parr in The Incredibles, which she's fantastic in. Um, but, like, it's like movies Plenty like... Plenty of television. Well, she plays the senator in Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, which we don't need, really need Exploding to talk about. Exploding pee! Like... Uh-huh. Grandma's peach tea. Yes. Um, does some television work. She's Billie Jean King in When Billy Beat Bobby. Um, mm-hmm. she's in a TV movie in 2000 called Harlan County War. She's, uh, of course shows up in succession for a stretch as Rhea Jarrell. And she st- had a main role, uh, opposite Ted Danson in a sitcom called Mr. Mayor that ran for, I want to say two seasons, uh, a couple years ago. But I maintain that like for an actress who is as inherently fascinating and is as skilled and is as good as holly hunter is like to her have stayed as good too. to have given her that few opportunities to be a lead in a movie feels criminal like not to be too hyperbolic but like i don't know what do you think what am, uh, i mean maybe even if it's not for a lead performance i don't think that 13 nomination i think it's very conceivable that you know oscar is not done with holly hunter oh i agree with that but I, I just sort of mean as a as a indictment of Hollywood's right, interest right. or disinterest in actresses as they get older and, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Like, her contemporaries I mean, are, you know, at that point, Meryl Streep and, you know, some, like... Glenn Close, you know, actresses who have ended up with more leading roles. Obviously, Meryl's an outlier. You can't really compare. But, yeah. like, Glenn Close, Susan Sarandon, like, there are there are actresses who 
faced a lot of the same hurdles, but I think we're still given probably more opportunities than Holly Hunter for whatever mm-hmm. reason. No, I mean, I definitely agree with you. I think it's probably odd that she hasn't gotten, like, again, not to, like, temper, uh, not to, like, offer the bummer solution to this, but, like, it is odd that, like, she hasn't had her, like, prestige limited series showcase. Yeah, she was a, you know? she was a feature performer in Top of the Lake, which is, like, a different, you know, that's a sort of a different thing. That's obviously her back with yeah. Jane Campion and whatever. But, like, yeah, you're not wrong. But even that, I don't think, would solve my general dissatisfaction with, you know, three lead roles since the piano. It's just such a stark statistic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, One for each decade, basically, because the piano was 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she's tremendous in all ways. I, I just love her energy in it. She makes, once again, I am picked up a The movie is better because she's head. there, and the movie's more interesting because an actress like her is there. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Oh, tell me, tell me. Hi, Chris. Good evening, Joseph. How are Afternoon, you? Afternoon, Twilight Hours. That's right. We are recording this at a different time than the rest of the podcast. We're taking a quick break from our episode on Always to talk to you for your uh, weekly Vulture Movies Fantasy League update, as we are going to be doing once a week through the Oscars. Get ready. Um, listeners, did you know that Vulture is bringing back its Vulture Movies Fantasy League and they let me, of all people, help design it? Uh, scattered I was, ooze. I was scattered Oz. Shocked as y'all are. Yeah, exactly. Monocles breaking everywhere across <laughs> the nation. Um, if you're at all familiar with fantasy sports, the concept is very similar. If you're not, do not worry. It is very easy to grasp how it's all going to work. We've gathered a list of movies that will be released and assigned them dollar values based on how well we think they will perform during awards season or perhaps at the box office if they are uh, opening in the last, say, five or six weeks of the year. Uh, and if you want to play, you will have a budget of 100 fake dollars and put, to get to put together your team of eight movies. So with a budget like that, there's some strategy. You got to take your shopping list out. You got to supermarket sweep this shit, essentially, right? <laughs> you got to work some shit out. Uh, you'll take some expensive movies and some not as expensive movies. That's, as Angela Bassett might say, that's the job. That's the game. Um and speaking of Angela Bassett, we should talk about Wakanda Forever, which is our first kind of big now landmark. Now in theaters. It, it, now in theaters, our first sort of big landmark in the Fantasy League game, because this is going to be our first sort of big box office points bonanza. So, and if you haven't already signed up, I was going to say you lost some points. There, hopefully, friends. when you listened to us uh, talk about the Fantasy League last week, you took our adv- our advice. If you wanted to draft Wakanda, you drafted it. Nice and before the opening weekend, because by the time you're hearing this, it's going to be doing snow angels in all of that sweet, sweet (laughs) box office money. So it'll be interesting to see what obviously all of the teams that opted for Black Panther and decided to go the I'm going to go for the box office behemoth route are all going to shoot to the top of the standings. And all these poor Fableman schlubs are going to be there with their, you know, with their pittance. Waiting, waiting out the season. Waiting out the season. Waiting for the Golden Globes and the Oscars and the SAGs and whatnot to start. Um, not to get into, I don't want to, again, get into the specifics of what our teams are. We will reveal that once everything is locked. This game locks uh, down on November 21st. So if you have not picked a Listeners, roster by you then, can't steal our strategy. You can't, you're not allowed to do that. No, You've got to come up with your own. 
It's not like you found a survivor idol that's a steal a strategy and you can just sort of ask us for it and take it. You have to tell Tina she can no longer use that strategy because you are using her strategy. (laughs) Um, So, but pick a team before November 21st because we want to be able to play with all of y'all. And so if one were to have picked Black Panther Wakanda Forever... What are we what are what are we sort of looking at in terms of long standing possibilities? Because you have seen this movie. I have I not. Have. Obviously the box office is gonna be there. But like once we get past that into awards season, where are you sort of thinking this is gonna go? Uh it will be very interesting. It may actually, you know, have to kind of settle in with how people are thinking about it. I was surprised to see the amount of negative responses to the movie that i've Mm. seen especially after having seen it so like that being said maybe best picture is not is looks like more wishful thinking uh from what we've had in the season so far Uh, i wouldn't necessarily rule it out i do think that there's plenty of nominations in the offing i would be very very surprised if ruth carter wasn't back uh and be a potential winner for costumes um obviously visual effects is on the table sound is on the table i would imagine art direction production design is on the table best original song rihanna i know people don't like that song i like the song especially in the context of the movie i like it i think people are going to come around once they get over the fact that not every song can be a ass throwing bop you know what i mean like and when it's... people realize hold my hand is a terrible song okay but i came around strong <laughs> come, came around strongly on hold my hand though i have now become it was it, i was out at a bar the other night and it came on the jukebox and i literally like my spirit sort of rose. listen like, it's oh, okay. stephanie's worst single ever whoa um, oh i have to i gotta figure there's something else that i can throw out there that is there isn't it's her thing. worst single no uh I'm going to come back to this. We're going to return to I this I like subject. the Rihanna lullaby. That's what I'll say. And I would say that would be a great winner. Everybody's assuming it's going to be Gaga versus Rihanna versus Taylor Swift versus LCD Sound System versus somebody. Um, probably not Diane Warren, even though she's getting the Governor's Award this year. She doesn't really have anything else on the horizon. <laughs> uh, so she's, she's sitting this one out as an emeritus. Um, I hope all four of those artists get nominated because what a cool year for best original song. It would be the coolest in like decades, kind of. I say this having never heard the Taylor Swift song. Yo, same. Or seen the Crawdads. No. None of my business. What the Crawdads are singing about (laughs) is none of my business, honestly. (laughs) I will have to see it if Taylor gets nominated, but it is... It is outside of my sphere of influence. Um, but anyway, if you have picked Black Panther Wakanda Forever, get ready to reap that points bonanza. And then, you know, cross your fingers that it shows up in enough awards categories through the season. There is that possibility because, like, those, there, it's more than just the Oscars, folks. Like, you'll be getting Critics' Choice nominations in, you know, certain things. And, who knows what the you know the Golden Globes and the SAGs are going to do? So Angela Bassett, I will say possibility. Angela, what do we th- say about Angela Bassett? I would feel stronger for her being a possibility if she had one more scene. However, uh-huh. she does get the best scene in the movie. Yeah, and 
it's the one that I think is it the scene know, where she walks out of uh, the the palace in Wakanda and snaps her fingers because it's on fire behind her? Is that <laughs> she just dumps all of uh, of uh, Submariner's clothes on the on the floor and lights them ablaze? Uh, exactly. It is exactly that scene. It's in the yeah. post credits. Yeah. Um, uh, no, it's the scene that, you know, really kind of got people's attention and started this conversation. I think when the trailer first dropped, maybe I'm a dum dum and I didn't realize who her scene partner would be for that, uh, scene. Uh, don't that, tell me because like, I don't think I realized either. Uh, it came as a surprise to me, and it yeah. came as a really um, kind of satisfying surprise to have those two characters having. The and you're not a Marvel person, so I'm not thinking it's like now it makes it intrigues me. Who would be satisfying for you in a Marvel movie to be like a scene partner? Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. well, just like it, just like it was kind of a surprise. The context in which you know Angela Bassett's big moment happens sure. is really good. Is it Richard Schiff in character as Toby Ziegler from The West Wing? A special guest star, on? Richard yeah. Schiff of yes. this movie. Okay. Right. Um, it is not though. She does share uh, a scene with special guest star Richard okay. Schiff. Very good. Um. The thing, okay, if she had one more scene, I would feel maybe more confident about it, but there does seem to be a lot of gas in that engine. Well, and supporting actress is at, is, is, is betwixt and between right now with Michelle having, right. uh, right. having exited the category. And so I do knows? wonder if there is some overconfidence in the multiple women talking nominations that I think a lot of people are kind of taking for granted right now. So I, there, there's still room to maneuver. And, you know, it, maybe this isn't a movie that critics love as much as audiences do, and this still, you know, becomes a big Oscar player. But sure. we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, anyway. As soon as I think uh, the Academy realizes they have not nominated Angela Bassett in 30 years, I think they are going to try to do something about that. Whether they do it in a superhero movie or not right. remains to be seen. We always say this, though, and they don't always listen. We always say you would think that they would feel some sort of urgency to nominate somebody they haven't nominated in quite a while, and they don't always listen to us. But perhaps they will. We're going to use our bully pulpit throughout the season. So, <laughs> um, Anyway, listeners, um, you must select a team, as I said, by November 21st to participate. So if you're listening to this as soon as it goes up, you've got a week to, to sign up. If you wait till the end of the week to listen to us, then you've got even less time. So uh, get out there. Uh, the movies will start scoring points as soon as you select them based on all sorts of factors that we mentioned. Uh, precursor awards, critics' prizes, the Independent Spirit Awards, the AARP Movies for Grownups Awards, which we love very much. And, you know, at the end of the season, once Oscar night's done, if you're in first place, you might win a TCL 55-inch 5 series smart Roku television. Or second place gets a stream bar and wireless base bundle, which I don't have either one of those, and I would like those. Uh, <laughs> I can't get those. I'm not eligible for prizes, as I keep my, uh, reminding people. But uh, other people, you, someone out there, somebody, knowing that the $2 billion Powerball ticket was bought at a gas station in Pasadena, California, and like I have been in Pasadena, California, really does make you think every once in a while of just like, 
maybe everywhere I go, I should just buy a lottery ticket just in case. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just to sort of like cover my bases every time in a new city. Anyway, that was a stray thought that didn't really need to be in this section. But you know what? Here it is. That's what we do here. That is what we do here. We wander off the beaten path. Uh, anyway, if you want to play, just go to moviegame.vulture.com. Thank you for sticking with us 10 minutes into this ad read. Ad read. Uh, uh, promotional segment before I ma- mentioned the actual place you should go to sign up for the game. Moviegame.vulture.com. From there, you can click on a link to a landing page where you can get the complete rules and regulations and all of the the movies and their prices. And then when you're ready, you can draft your team. Once again, November 21st. Don't wait too long. And yeah, we'll see you in the game. All right, Chris, should we, talk, go, should we go back and talk about Always some more? Yes. All right, back to Always. Oh, tell me, tell me. There's something about the, like, emotional, like, ebbs and flows of this movie that, like, it's missing a cook in the kitchen or something. Like, it never quite gets there but like the times that it does it kind of does basically on her shoulders i think it maybe Um, needs a more robust comedic energy or i think that's i think that's it because you wouldn't want to lose the idiosyncrasies of hunter's performance and like there's a scene early on where they're in the little sort of like canteen area right where like they're all you know having a drink and everybody's kind of around and he wants to give her this present and she's giving him shit and they start sort of wisecracking at each other and they start laughing in this really like matchy matchy sort of like cackle at each other they're making fun of each other's laugh they're making fun of the way each other laughs in a way that feels almost like improvisational like i wonder how much of Mm -hmm. that was even in the script but there's so much energy to that so much weird energy to that that i was like this is something this is this is something i'm i'm responding to it's a weird energy but it's not like i i like watching them together but i don't actually root for their romance right. particularly right and like again this is not to just like shit on the actor that we know as a like problem because it's trying to sound cool but like i think the problem is richard dreyfus like you you mentioned redford as one of the potential mm-hmm. like actors in that role and like i think you put robert redford in that role and it's a completely different movie I and i don't always love robert redford as an actor but like yeah those two in a relationship in this context in this movie i'm absolutely rooting for it i'm absolutely emotionally invested in it in a way that i'm really not in this one like their relationship together and his feelings for her particularly the thing about richard dreyfus is he's sort of he has the Oscar for The Goodbye Girl in 1980, no, 70, no, 77. 77. It's the same year as right. Close Encounters, and it's like, it kind of sucks, because I think he's way better in Close Encounters. Yeah. Well, I well, I was going to make the observation that like he sort of comes to attention in Jaws, where he's a supporting character, and has a lot of that kind of big... Not necessarily manic, but like he's a, he's an agitated character in a lot of, uh, mm-hmm. and it's really successful. I love him in Jaws, and yep. Close Encounters. Very handsome. <laughs> I I owe a rewatch to because that's another movie where I've I don't even think I've ever seen the whole thing the whole way through. I saw it when I was way too it's young. A great to movie, and I wa- like and but it's it's encouraging to me that you uh, say he's very successful as the lead role in that because mm-hmm. I was sort of wondering like what. The energy that Richard Dreyfus gives, I, 
I always come back to a movie like What About Bob? Because I've watched that movie 8 billion times. And God, we talked about this a little right. bit when you talked about in our Mermaids episode about Frank Oz and how he's sort of a cursed director who always <laughs> ends up with these like problem situations. And like to be on a set with Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfus, who are both these like famously prickly, difficult people who well, hated and all each the other. Shit coming on out set. about Bill Murray right now, and like all of the What About Bob stories, Richard Dreyfus is the one who like not that Richard Dreyfus didn't add to that situation, but right. like Richard Dreyfus is the one who comes off well. Right. Is <laughs> this is a lot. Right. But like so Richard Dreyfus in that movie, just talking about it as a movie, right? Yeah. Is the bad guy in that. He's the sort of pompous and easily agitated and his comedic energy in that movie is for as much as like Murray is the lead guy like Dreyfus is the one who I find so incredibly funny in that movie Mm -hmm. because he's so just absolutely driven absolutely up the wall by by Murray's character and Part of me is like, maybe I was sort of imprinted with that movie early to the point where it's like, maybe that's the Richard Dreyfus that I want, because I see him in something like Always, and it's like, my inclination is not to be on your side here, buddy. Like, my inclination is to sort of sympathize with Holly Hunter's character when she's the most sort of uh, frustrated by you and agitated by you, and it takes a lot to get me invested in these sort of real deep feelings between you two and again i think by the end of the movie like when when after she puts out the fire at the end of the movie and she's flying back and he's sort of talking to her and sort of saying all the things that he that he always you know should have said it really works and he's very good in that scene and she's tremendous throughout the movie but i think that's the moment where i was like oh this is this is affecting me more than i thought it would given that i didn't think i really cared about this relationship Interesting. I didn't feel the same way about that scene. Yeah. But, like, I also don't think Dreyfus is necessarily a problem as an actor I don't, like, emotionally invest in. Mm-hmm. And that's why the problem is. I think he's more so just, like, probably wrong for this part in the relationship. Your point about Redford because, like, is very well taken. I think you're totally right about that. He would. I mean, great. imagine Redford doing that monologue. Yeah. Like, not only would you be, like, crying, but you would be, like, sliding off your chair, <laughs> right? Like, you know, full snail situation. Um, no, but, like, uh, Dreyfus is someone that I r- root for emotionally, even though, like, he can play an asshole. Like, mm. Close Encounters, Mr. Holland's Opus. Like, the problem isn't that you can't connect emotionally with that actor. I think, in the circumstances, I just don't think he's right for it. And, like, I don't know if I believe him as a love interest to Holly Hunter in a way that I would, like, a Redford, Yeah, I want to bring up his filmography for a second, because where is he at this point in his career? So he had just... Done. He is Bob Rumsfeld, and he is running for president. <laughs> um, he had just done that uh, movie Moon Over Parador, which is... I remember when this came up in the box office game, and the plot of it was... It's essentially uh, Dave, but in South America. Uh, the, the Kevin sure. Klein movie, Dave. I had no idea. That doesn't sound problematic at all. That's a movie that existed as a VHS cover at Blockbuster for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's like hanging off of the moon and Sonia Braga and it's sort of this like artist rendering or whatever. Um, so that was 1988. So that was right uh, before this. And then right after this, he's in 
a small role, I believe. I think it's well, he's billed third in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which is again a movie that I saw before I should have because I didn't really appreciate the the references and the comedy and all the stoppered of it all. Like I, I owe that one a rewatch too. And then he's also in a supporting role in Postcards from the Edge, if you recall. He's the yes. doctor who sort of uh, falls for uh, for Meryl Streep's character. Um, Is that the only time he ever worked with Mike Nichols? Hmm. That's a good question. Maybe. I'm going through... Uh, Interesting. It very well could be. Yeah. Um, and then 1991, it's Once Around, that movie with Holly Hunter that we were just talking about. What about Bob? 93, then, he's into, like, Lost in Yonkers and another stakeout, which was a sequel to 1987 stakeout. And then like, yeah, 95, he gets his other Oscar nomination for Mr. Holland's opus. And he's also Senator Bob Rumson, uh, who's pro <laughs> like thinly. Oh, did I call him Rumsfeld? <laughs> I, you might have, but like, that's, he's, he's that stand-in. I mean, he's the stand-in for yeah. every Bob Dole, Newt Gingrich, like Clinton, Bill Clinton uh, antagonist. That existed in politics at the time. And then after Mr. Holland's opus, like he makes that awful uh, movie Crippendorf's Tribe with Jenna Elfman, which was <laughs> not a great idea. I would Secret imagine. Scientologist Jenna Elfman. Secret Scientologist, not even secret. She's just out there. And, and But like after that, he's basically, he'll show up in movies like Poseidon or as Dick Cheney in W. Boy, playing Bob Rumson and Dick Cheney in one's career, like that's a real. <laughs> uh, that's a real uh, full circle kind of a thing. Um, he showed up in Book Club in 2018 as... That's right. One of Candace Bergen's suitors. That's right. And then that might have been the last time I've seen him in a movie. Perhaps. He was on television and a bunch of things. He was in that show, um, The Education of Max Bickford, that only lasted a season. But it was notable for having... Uh, Marsha Gay Harden right after she won her Oscar for Pollock. So that was a TV show mm-hmm. with two Oscar winners, uh, just in a regular network TV drama. Um, he shows up on Weeds for a few episodes playing Mary Louise Parker's, I want to say, father-in-law in Weeds. That was when I they, like, the first season where they, like, ducked out to California, to Southern, to the... Uh, Stay left aggressive. See, the thing about weeds is you have to you have to pretend that it ended after season three when they leave aggressive because that's when it tanks. Yeah, it's yeah. There are moments after that, and like uh, I watched that show to the end, and I do feel like it ended on an interesting note. But yes, you're not wrong. Um, played Bernie Madoff in a miniseries called Madoff that aired on ABC. <laughs> Uh, him and Blythe Danner. Sounds like Paramount Network. I know. Um, and then he was on a Great British Bake Off uh, Stand Up to Cancer Celebrity Charity special. That's interesting. I didn't see that one. I want to track that one down. <laughs> Speaking of Bake Off, where are, what, how are you feeling about Bake Off this season? <laughs> I feel like Bake Off's going to be over by the time I was going to say, by the time it's come out, which is fine because I can talk about eliminations without being so... You've watched this week's episode, which was Custard. <laughs> I have. I don't understand why it's controversial. People really don't seem to like Janusz, and I'm like, he's great. He just had a bad week. But he should like, have gone home for that bad week, is the thing. No, he shouldn't have. Kevin has never done that well. To send Kevin home after Prue is literally like, 
I can't wait to make that again. It was the best thing I've tasted in quite a while. Just because it, it was, was falling apart. After that ice cream challenge, we can't get it get on anybody's case for things falling apart, I believe. I think Janusz had a really, I really I think you can when it's a different challenge. I think Janusz should have gone home. That is my That is batshit to me. Nope. I know you have been I know I have a massive crush you do. on Janusz, yes, but you that's do. still crazy yes. to me. No, you he should have. This is to me, this is Shabira's season. If Shabira doesn't win, I'm gonna be really, really sad. I love Shabira, I love Maxi. Um, I'm okay with Maxi. Maxi is I like love Sandro. Maxi's that traditional like Paul Hollywood crush object that like he sort of settles on every season. That I'm just like whatever. Um, she's so reliable though. She's fine. I think Sandro's a little uh, overrated because he's so hot. Is the other thing like? Mm, I don't know if I, I agree with that. I just think he is missed. On a, I mean, he did finally get it this week, right? No. Shabira got it. No, he. Oh, Shabira. The storyline that like will Sandro ever win that little extra punch? It feels like the show wants us to be very invested in him winning Star Baker, and I'm like, I don't know if like I am. Like he's had so many weeks where they were like, your flavors are whack. Like at this point, like what's going on? And he had a good week, except for. Something went wrong this week. I don't know. He had a pretty good week. He was the only person whose ice cream wasn't complete soup. And, like, for as much as the technical even matters anymore, the technical is, like, runway and drag race, where it's like, do they really judge, <laughs> like, do they take this into account at all, or is it just there as, like, window I wrestling? feel like they have for Shabira. Well, yes. Because it's been a component of her the first time she got Star but Baker, if they But if they took it into account this week, she wouldn't have won Star Baker because she was, like, last in technical. But, like, it was Sandro and everybody else. Right. But I think if they took... So. But if they took technical seriously, then Sandro would have won Star Baker this week for Custard Week. Maybe. Anyway, justice for Kevin. I did this to myself because... You did. You thought I, I was going to agree with, with you on the Yanish thing, and I am not on your side. Sorry. All right, where are we? Uh, Richard Dreyfus. I do want to track down that episode of uh, Celebrity uh, Group. He better have been nice to them, by the way. Well, that's what I want to see. I, I'm very curious. All right, now I'm looking at Richard Dreyfus Awards and, uh, um, and nominations. He was obviously two Academy Award nominations, uh, one win and one nomination. Um was a Golden Globe nominee for Supporting Actor for Nuts, the Barbra Streisand movie that we've talked about before. Previous episode. Uh, He was a Razzie nominee for Worst Actor for The Competition in 1980, which is him and Amy Irving, uh, where he is... Speaking of Spielberg. He's a gifted pianist, and... She's, I imagine, his love interest. So the poster, all right, I'm going to, it's one of those posters with like a paragraph worth of text. So I'm just going to read it. He has been working for this moment his entire life. This is his last chance for her. This could be the beginning and it would be the perfect love story if it weren't for ellipsis, the competition. (laughs) So I imagine they are in competition with each other. All right. Uh, Razzie nomination for that. Um, SAG nomination for a television movie called The Day Reagan Was Shot, where he plays Alexander Haig. Okay. Um, Which I imagine that if he's the lead of that, that's sort of like, what's going on when Reagan is maybe dead and Alexander Haig is essentially running the government, which we was dramatized in an episode of The Americans, I believe, that one time. Um, He did get... 
or always did get a Saturn nomination. I feel like that was one of its like few uh, accolades. Was it two years after the movie came out? Like the last time we've talked about the Saturn Awards? <laughs> Maybe. Um, what was the Saturn nomination? It wasn't for uh, uh, Dreyfus, I'll say that. It was for, God, IMDb, your entire layout makes me sad. Everything's where it shouldn't be. Um, best fantasy film nominated and best writing for Jerry Belson. I want to get to Jerry Belson in a second too. Um, best fantasy film in the year of 1989 was won by, all right, here's where we're going to get into. Uh, was it back to the future too? No, I'll read off all the other nominations. There's like 10 of them, right? Batman, Dick Tracy, field of dreams. So this spans 89 and 90 stuff. Gremlins Mm -hmm. to the new batch. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the other Spielberg 1989 movie. We'll get into Spielberg 2 for us in a second, too. Uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, uh, notorious now for uh, uh, Sarah Polly, right? That was the movie. That was the Terry Gilliam movie where Sarah Polly Mm -hmm. had the really, really bad time. And uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, speaking of uh, VHSs that I wore out as a child. I watched that movie so many times. Um, but the winner that year was Ghost, which was a very... So yes, this is split across calendar years. Yes. Uh, Ghost was uh, Best Picture nominee in 1990, made so much money. Um, a different spin on a similar thing where the man in a relationship dies and he sticks around to sort of watch his beloved sort of struggle to put her life back together. Now in Ghost, that also becomes wrapped up in uh finance crime and Tony Goldwyn and also of course Clairvoyance. Uh, as you mentioned, <laughs> uh Oda Mae Brown played by Whoopi Goldberg. So but also like around this general time. Um also that movie Heart and Souls with uh Robert Downey Jr., which yes. is in nineteen ninety three, where the the spirits of four dead people played by Kira Sedgwick, uh, Alfre Woodard, Tom Sizemore, and Charles Grodin, all sort of serve as guardian angels for little Robert Downey Jr. And then speaking of Robert Downey Jr., it's not ghosts, but I will say, chances are, which I think is also 1989, which is the movie that uh, the song "After All" by Cher and Peter mm-hmm. Cetera gets Oscar nominated for. One of my favorite Cher songs of all time. Um, the plot of that movie, which I always have to remind myself, like, how creepy is this? It's pretty creepy. Um, Robert Downey Jr. plays the reincarnated version of, like, Sybil Shepard's husband dies in the 1960s. He is immediately reincarnated into a baby who grows up to be Robert Downey Jr., who then encounters, um... He doesn't know he's the reincarnated version of anybody at this point. Encounters Mary Stuart Masterson, who is Sybil Shepherd's kid with <laughs> the guy oh, no. that he... So, like, his reincarnated uh, daughter, or uh, reincarnated him, <laughs> uh, had the daughter, right? He doesn't know this, but then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. he goes to mother and he's reminded so then he starts to romance Sybil Shepherd because he's her reincarnated husband but she is in this tentative like should I get in a relationship with Ryan O'Neill who is the husband's longtime friend and he's been like there for her all this time and so eventually he puts uh he sort of matchmakes maybe 
Sybil Shepard and Ryan O'Neill together, and then is gifted the gift of ignorance, essentially, and sort of, <laughs> so then Robert Downey Jr. goes back to just thinking he's Robert Downey Jr., but, like, ends up with Mary Stuart Masterson at the end of this movie. So we in the audience still have the awareness that he's having sex with his spiritual daughter. 100%. Where was Karina Longworth on this for erotic 80s? Like, I ask <laughs> you. Ugh. I ask you. So... That was also in the ether in 1989. So it was really all happening back then. Um, the 80s were fucked, man. The 80s were crazy. Like, they just, like, there. there's some sort of degree of Hollywood hubris where it's just like, if we give them a romance, they'll go for it. You know what I mean? It's just like, if we tell right. them that this is the romance that they are supposed to root for, they will root for it. And it's like... We have our limits, uh, good sirs. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, what else did I say we would get back into? Oh, Spielberg twofers I want to talk about. Cause, uh, yes. This, this... this is the first Spielberg twofer because it's the same year as uh, Last Crusade, which it's also the only Spielberg twofer where they both aren't nominated for something. Last Crusade doesn't get anything? Last Crusade has three Oscar nominations. Yes. Oh, so you're saying every year that there's a two for they only each, always all yes they each of get all of the two first Spielberg movies always is the only one with zero Oscar nominations. Lost World is nominated for visual effects, I guess. Uh, yes, but maybe also sound. Interesting. So right, eighty nine, just visual effects. Last Crusade is the popular World. one. Always is the quote unquote failure. Then ninety three is the like platonic ideal of the Spielberg double, where it's like. The commercial success, Jurassic Park, it breaks records probably, and was like a huge, huge deal. And then up at the end of the year comes Schindler's List, the awards darling. He finally wins the Oscar. It's like, couldn't have gone better for Steven Spielberg in 1993. 97 is like, it's literally like redo, but on a lower level, right? The Lost World yes. happens. It's less of a success. It's less of a good movie. People go to see it, but not to the degree of enthusiasm. Still get some nominations. And then Amistad is the uh, sort of wannabe Schindler's List sounds more cruel than I want to, but like it's going right. for the same kind of prestige niche that Schindler's List is going for and succeeds to a lesser degree. Gets a nomination for Anthony Hopkins and supporting actor, but like doesn't reach the heights of Schindler's List. Um, right. Then the next double is 2002, Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can, which both seem to succeed around the same. That's like the closest. We're like that's the double year where like they're the closest to each other. I feel like in relative the, levels of success, right? I mean, Catch Me If You Can does better with awards and such it also gets that acting nomination for christopher walken mm -hmm. but like i don't know history has maybe changed the point of view on this because you get a lot of people now crazily to me uh saying like minority report is like their favorite spielberg i love minority report i do see minority report does not do it for oh me, i think like, it's so good it has it has a higher i would argue it has a higher reputation now than it did at the time i will here's what i will say minority report comes the next year after ai and i remember at the time being like minority report AI. is so much better than ai i don't think that anymore yes. i do, every time i see ai it jumps up higher and higher for me on my spielberg list AI is incredible um but i still think minority reports really fantastic uh also 
top five handsome Colin Farrell performances. And like, that is maybe a list <laughs> that needs to be made this year with Banshees of Sharon. Uh, but like, uh, the list of people who need to work with Spielberg again, uh, Colin Farrell at the top of my list. Well, Holly Hunter too. Like, this is what I wanted to say yeah. that I didn't mention with the Holly Hunter thing. He doesn't work with Holly Hunter again. And like, a lot of sort of misguided takes will lead you down the path of Spielberg doesn't write movies for women. And like, on a numbers level, that's kind of true. Um, but I don't think I would paint Spielberg as like an anti-woman filmmaker that like, I mean, like, but does Spielberg make, if you look at the, all of it as a whole, does Spielberg make movies for like humans? There's a lot of alien movies where the thrust is, Right, I wouldn't peg Spielberg as like a filmmaker for men either. You know what I mean? Like, um, but and I even that is me being reductive. Right, and I don't. Yeah, you don't. You want to avoid being reductive about that kind of thing. That being said, um, put Holly Hunter in a movie, Stephen. Like, please. (laughs) The next Spielberg twofer is two thousand five, where you get War of the Worlds again. visual effects maybe sound for that movie but then it's also munich which munich is like that season the movie that's looming over the whole season we knew that this movie it was like the big like final movie yeah. back when there was like is this movie gonna get done in time type of movies in the holiday season which you really don't see that much of anymore um and it gets five nominations yeah. is way better than the amount of talk that i think that that movie gets War of the Worlds um, in Munich, that double is like, once again, we talk about like dark. <laughs> the, the classic Spielberg double of financial success followed by Oscar play. That is like, if Lost World and Amistad were like that, but worse, War of the Worlds in Munich is like that, but on drugs. Like it's so, like it's on like peyote or something like that, right? Where like War of the Worlds is a weirder blockbuster than it gets credit for, plus all the Tom very, Cruise couch jumping It was stuff. very divisive at the time, I too. still don't think it's as good as people. Like, there are people who will ride for I that like movie. I like it a lot. I think there's a lot of problems with that movie. I think, uh, I don't know, not to get into it, but, like, and then Munich, I like, but it's a weird movie for, like, for what it is. Munich is a very, very dark movie. And maybe not everything works, but it's, very, to me, very close to a masterpiece. Interesting. The, the like cross-cutting of sex to yeah. violence is remains very deeply strange and kind um, of out of touch not out of touch like incongruous with spielberg's strengths i would say like i don't know if spielberg's the guy who i want towing that line of sex and violence you know what i mean like he's maybe not well sure the guy for that uh, for a movie that like is never talked about for its actors there's a handful of really tremendous performances in that movie um visually i think you know for this morally complex espionage thriller there's a lot more going on visually than i think that movie gets credit for yeah. um Munich's great. <laughs> uh, and then the last one, 2011, Adventures of Tintin, which I remember so little about. Like, it really doesn't exist in my memory at all. Remember when they were like, we're going to make four Tintin movies or something? Yeah, and it just, it doesn't really s- connect with the public. I think it makes it makes a decent amount of money. It's not like a flop financially, right? Or am I misremembering? Uh, it definitely did not make as much money as they wanted sure. it to. I think it made like seventy-five million okay. in the states. Um, 
it, it and there's like some cool visual stuff in that. I remember like the finale of that movie being a lot of fun. Yeah. But it's just like it's an IP that nobody not a lot of people really cared about at least in the states and I don't yeah. or it's like it's just an older property that the movie didn't do a great job of investing us in yeah. for if we were unfamiliar. And then Warhorse which as I said was the best best picture nominee Warhorse. of 2011. So there we go. Uh, we again we were fighting in the thread i used to be a moneyball voter i am probably now a tree of life voter listen uh, on a long enough timeline people will just float to malik i guess um listen <laughs> listen uh you you can't give me shit because i don't give warhorse you shit. of course give warhorse shit you mean everybody i don't like warhorse everybody but when we're talking in the context of that best picture lineup which i said was the worst since the experience that like, i won't disagree Warhorse with is definitely is. floats towards the top of that list uh, uh, lords over all of them as the lord horse of war yes the thing about war horse as i said in our uh, text thread uh which i it's one of those things sometimes i'll say something and i'm like wait a second i think that's true <laughs> Because I can, <laughs> I can be as full of bullshit as anybody. There is something about Warhorse that I feel like it's. Now I'm going to sound like an asshole for saying it out loud. There is something about Warhorse that to me feels like a reckoning with the kind of violence that Saving Private Ryan succeeds very well in. Saving Private Ryan was so uh, ballyhooed for many things, and I think it's a tremendous movie, um, but for showing the horrors of that normandy landing in all like not the unvarnished violence and terror and horror of that and all the death and all the bodies on the beach and all the bullets sort of zipping through people's helmets and through the water and all of that it's an incredibly violent scene and i think warhorse to me feels like spielberg reckoning with that a bit and being like war is so horrific and i've made this you know gotten i've succeeded so well in depicting it and now i almost want to turn the camera away from it and it got a lot of because criticism there's for that. an incredible amount of purpose to the way that viol- violence of war is depicted in saving private ryan but because it was so like definitional it completely rechanged like it, it rechanged not a word <laughs> uh it completely changed the like cinematic language of how violence and war would be depicted in a way yeah. that was used by all these other filmmakers video game makers sure. and such with much less purpose they were like let's use that language and it's cool yeah you know like and i think a lot of people sort of got on warhorse's case for the ways in which it would sort of step up to the line of something really horrific happening and either put the camera on Tom Hiddleston's face or that shot where like the windmill sort of obscures a killing. You know what I mean? And to me, Mm -hmm. it felt like, well, that to me felt very intentional, which was almost Spielberg, the like the caring patriarch, you know what I mean? Sort of like turning our face away and being like, you know, this is too much to bear for these people. And so, you know, these horrors of war can be that there's a time to show these things and there's a time to show the act of, you know, 
the person who's who's watching it and the person who mm-hmm. maybe shouldn't have to watch it. And listen, I, think I love it's when Spielberg gets on his William Wyler shit. I'm not gonna yeah. complain about that. I just have other qualms with the movie. But again, of that best picture lineup, I think it floats towards the top yeah. of a lot of. I wa- I'm, I'm, I'm sort of going through my always notes now. Um, this movie gets a lot of mileage out of uh, Smoke It's in Your Eyes, which yes. feels a little on the nose to me in a movie about, like, you know, firefighters. <laughs> Literal smoke. Yeah. But yeah. I, that is a song that is in <laughs> a lot of movies and a lot of TV mm-hmm. shows. That gets a lot, a of- lot of highbrow, lowbrow well, movies, etc. It's interesting. It's in so many things, and you would think it wouldn't be then defined by any one movie and i was surprised how much watching this movie i'm like oh that song kind of belongs to 45 years for me now like every time yeah, it, i watch it, that, i see that it's kind of wholeheartedly uh robbed it from the rest of right it. like i hear that song and i immediately am thinking of charlotte rampling and 45 years and like it's yeah. it's surprising to me how uh, indelible that is now um it also uh apologies to you chris um delves into the van morrison of it all with uh the moment <laughs> where they're dancing to crazy love which not one of my favorite van morrison songs but still very good yeah. uh, how can you have favorite van morrison okay. songs they're all the fucking okay. same um interesting because like spielberg doesn't use pop music all that much i was kind of struck by that that like he could use some like singular piece of music in a way i mean like a lot of his movies like musically rely on like the scores of john williams and this is horner right there might be a pop song or two in the fable men's no this is john williams something else that i was thinking of was horner score this is of course john williams because everything is john yeah this is john williams um you were thinking of what in the Fablemans? I think there's, I think there's like a pop song cue or two in the. I think you're right. I can't wait to watch. It, that it's movie rare again. that like a a famous piece of pop music is in a Spielberg movie, yeah, um, and like spotlighted in the way that it is in this. Yeah. Um, what else did I want? There was one line of dialogue that I wrote down. Holly Hunter's line readings in this movie are really fantastic, but she's talking about. Um, I think she's talking to Goodman about the Ted character, and she says, I can't be with a guy who looks like I want him in a raffle. <laughs> Which is just a really good one. Okay, we gotta talk a little bit about Ted. Okay. The 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 most I have never seen an introducing screen credit for such a milk toast performance. Like not I yeah. mean, I get that the Marble Man you bringing up that he was a Marble Man makes total sense why he would have gotten an introducing credit. Speaking of lines from was, Angels in America, by the way. I he was going like to say that as well. Yeah. Um, excellent punchline. Yeah. Um, Marlboro Man, incredibly enigmatic a piece of pop culture that people were very drawn to. Yeah. Not a screen presence. He's, the man just he's a lo- he's a loaf of bread, like I said in the plot description. He really is. He's yeah. just sort of reliable, and you know. Why does that have to be the character too? Like, make her fall in love with John Goodman. Like, yes. We the movie needs more John Goodman as it is. Okay, like John Goodman kind of cuts out of the movie at a certain point yes. when it's like y- you want him to be there. Like you, you put in a section in the notes that I want to re- visit about uh, John Goodman has never been nominated for an Oscar. How close do we think he's ever come? Because it's a- aside from Barton Fink, like I don't think it's ever so. There was a point during the his run of being in a bunch of Best Picture 
nominees or mm-hmm. best picture adjacent movies where he's in the artist he's in argo he's in inside lewin davis which isn't a best picture nominee but like was in that conversation he's in flight which mm-hmm. uh, ditto extremely loud and incredibly close it felt like there was a a sentiment around that time that if you they could just latch on to one thing it's surprising okay here's where i'm going to say it's surprising to me that that alan arkin nomination for argo which i guess it's a halo nomination he had recently won for little miss sunshine it makes sense that the oscar voters who loved him so much in that would still gravitate to you know, a, a, a performance that like literally says the one thing about that movie that everybody was like the catchphrase from that movie that would endure throughout that uh, Oscar season with our go fuck yourself. But looking back, you're like, why couldn't that nomination have just been to John Goodman? They both are, they're doing kind of the same thing in that movie. Right. Well, because Alan Arkin has the catchphrase. <laughs> and the I think that's Oscar. true. But I think if you, it's one of those things where if you look back, I don't think John Goodman needed an Oscar nomination for Argo, but like to give him an Academy Award nomination at some point, that would have felt like the place to do it. I wrote down three roles that I would have had. I would have, if not nominated him for, like would have been close to a nomination for me. Are they all Coens? Two of them are. Um, one of them is Barton Fink, which I think he's genu- genuinely incredible and is terrifying. And just a, if that performance comes later in his career and later in the Cohen's career, that's mm-hmm. maybe a nominee. I also feel like he's so fucking funny in The Big Lebowski. And I get that, like, Lebowski was the come down movie after Fargo. It's a lot more of a broad comedy. So, uh, Hollywood was basically like, oh, this isn't the Coens in the register that we nominated them for. We'll maybe take a pass on this. And like the reviews were kind of mixed for Lebowski, even though it's become such like a, a fan favorite of theirs. But I think regardless yeah. of all of that, I think Goodman specifically is just tremendous in that movie and is funny. Maybe the best performance in the movie. Uh, I think it is the best performance in the movie and one of my favorites in his career. And then the third one, which was never going to happen, but I think he's great. And I think a lot of people have said this too, I know this is, is 10 be. Cloverfield Lane. He's yeah. so yeah. terrifying in that movie. He's so good. I mean, uh, on a certain level, he makes the movie work yeah. as well as it does too, because yeah. If you don't question him and his motives throughout the whole movie, the movie kind of falls apart um, without that performance, I think, or at least calibrating that performance in the way that Goodman does. Mm. It's the, the kind of shitty thing about it is that like this whole kind of trajectory, because you could you could have seen it for a few years because he's in all of these awardsy movies, and it's like somebody's gonna give him mm-hmm. the role that's just like gonna happen mm-hmm. for him because I do actually think he's one of those actors that the first time he's nominated, he's winning like a Regina um, King period. or like a like that kind of a thing exactly yeah. exactly yeah. um that uh but like. Ever since the fucking Connors, man, like that show, I believe is still running. Yes, it is. Like, yeah, I we love gainful employment for. Uh, I will say, and there's the Righteous Gemstones too, which I don't. I, I don't know people who still watch the Connors, it. and like, and I, 
I believe them when they say that, like, it's doing some really interesting things in terms of a working class family dramatizing, like, working class concerns. And now that Roseanne isn't on it, it doesn't have that taint of, you know, who are we? Are we carrying water for, like, you know, Trumpists and whatever? And it's just, it's, it's depicting a level of economic reality that doesn't exist on most of television. And I agree with that. Every single time I try to dip into the Connors, it's so the bleakness really, really throws me. It's just like, it's an incredibly Mm -hmm. bleak sitcom. And I think for better or for worse, I watch that. And I think of how funny I thought the original 1990s version of the show was with Roseanne for all of her, awfulness like back then like that show was really funny and she was a really big part of that and it's hard for me to sort of then go into this show that is just like you know it's really grim it's really bleak and i can't quite it's just do it. not for me yeah it's just not gonna he be doesn't have any movies on his imdb in the works right now it's a bummer, man. He's doing voice work on Monsters at Work on Disney Plus, and he's doing the Connors, and he's doing the Righteous Gemstones, and like, yeah, nothing yet, nothing at the moment. Give us a remake of like you can't take it with you or something. Give us something. Yes, yeah. Like, all right, we need John Goodman's Oscar. Briefly, I want to talk about screenwriter. Jerry Belson, who uh, is credited with the script. There's uh, uncredited uh, rewrites by Diane Thomas, who wrote Romancing the Stone. and uh, But anyway, uh, Jerry Belson, which like sounds like the name of, like, literally, if you said that was the Eli Wallach character in The Holiday, like, <laughs> I would believe you. Um, but co-created The Tracy Ullman Show with James L. Brooks and uh, some other people, was a writer for The Dick Van Dyke Show, um, Part of me feels like when I read that part about him as the writer for the Dick Van Dyke show, I'm just imagining like Jake Lacey's character and being the Ricardos. You know what I mean? Like that kind of a thing where it's just sort of like this like young, <laughs> sort of young no, pop ma'am. writer. No, on man. A, on a... Shut up about that movie. I think it's a good movie. All right. Um, I'm so sick and tired of being shamed for liking that movie. Um, anyway, I'm not shaming you for liking it. I'm shaming you for bringing up that non-character. At least bring up Alia Shawcat. Okay. They were the same. That was the same storyline. Whatever. She at least got to like the, the, have the monologues. Anyway. Um, my thing about the script in this movie is if you told me that whole passages were lifted from that original script that they're remaking, I would believe you because this was one of my my issues with that final monologue where he's literally framed right over her shoulder telling her all of these things that he never got to say it it's old-fashioned in a way that i want to like Mm -hmm. that it feels like from a movie from the a spencer tracy movie yeah exactly uh but like richard dreyfus just isn't the vessel for that like he can't he can't be earnest in the way that it needs him to be earnest um but, like, I do also think that that's probably some of people's limitation with this movie, mm-hmm. is that it is remarkably old-fashioned in that way. That, like, people talk like people would have talked in a movie in the 40s, not, like, in a movie that they talk in the 80s yeah. or the late 80s. But know? again, I think Holly Hunter fits that vibe really well. And it makes me wish that they had, that 
you know, she had been put in that kind of a, you know, almost like retro pastiche kind of a thing more often, mm-hmm. because I think she would have really succeeded really well with it. Um, which I think is also a reason why she does very well with the Coens, because it's a very specific sort mm-hmm. of pitch of tone that she's able to really dial into. And um, I don't know. I really like that. But yes, I think you're not wrong about that and about the sort of um, the old fashionedness of a lot of the dialogue. Sometimes it really works. Like I said, I really liked that uh, one of them is a prize in a raffle line, but like it is sort of, <laughs> you know, part and parcel of, a, th- a thing like that. So, yeah. But also, you see why Spielberg was drawn to somebody who loves, you know, these old movies so much, was drawn to making a movie sort of unabashedly old fashioned in that way. So, I mean, this is, again, I think, uh, Spielberg on his William Wyler shit, mm-hmm. um, which is a mode that I love him in. It feels, again, I think, like it's not quite getting there so like i understand that this is not a beloved movie but i also don't understand the that this is a hated movie yeah like it's also an interesting time in spielberg's life he's going through the divorce with amy irving at this time Mm. that like makes you wonder if like maybe it wasn't you know his most uh focused set or something because it's just like it feels like all the ingredients are there and it just doesn't get where it needs to go yeah i also want to quote this there was a reappreciation of always that was written on rogerebert.com in 2016 by jessica ritchie and there was this one thing that made me uh sort of take note of it in terms of like influences on spielberg right uh, always uh, mm-hmm. so this is the quote always is a remake of the 1943 victor fleming film a guy named joe and it owes a great deal to howard hawks's only angels and only angels has have wings as well uh the hawksian influence is unusual for spielberg leaving his adoration of john ford to the side to focus on the jockeying friendships of men and the fierce women who thrive under pressure which uh as somebody who has not watched nearly enough of the old Howard Hawks films or John Ford films. And you mentioning Weiler really intrigues me as well. Uh, Because Spielberg is a filmmaker who wears his influences on his sleeve so much. Watching a Spielberg movie, especially one like this always makes me wish I had like a week to just watch like a dozen old movies. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That just um, to get a better sense of, his influences and the, where he's coming from and this kind of stuff, because I bet you it would make for a richer experience for me watching it. I mean, maybe just but... for me, you know what I mean? Like, I just feel yeah. like it would just, at the very least, it maybe doesn't make the movie work any better, but it makes me want to, it's that, you know, makes you understand where he's you make me from. want to be a better man from uh, as good as it gets. Like that's <laughs> Spielberg to me, but about uh, be a better movie watcher. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're probably not going to get me to watch many more John. Sure. Of course. Because he did a lot of. Westerns sure. But I just mean it in, in, in general. In general. Time in the day. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Anything else you want to say? Fablemans. Fablemans. I can't wait to watch the Fablemans again. Holy mackerel. Yeah, I can't wait to take, like, people I love <laughs> to see that movie. Not to sound like a complete cornball, but, like... Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good movie. 
All right. Go see it. Not that our, anyone who listens to our podcast probably needs to. I was going to say, if you're listening to this podcast, it, you're already geared up for the Fablemans, so good for you. This is another reason why I pulled up all of like the lowest Spielberg grossing movies, because like, I'm really worried what's going to happen to this movie if it doesn't make I don't know. Happen. I feel like movies that are released towards the end of the year, we're having we're in a good box office year like there are encouraging signs for movies of all stripes at the box office this year i think i have faith that fablemans will do well listen holiday movie going like fablemans isn't that long it's only two and a half hours long compared to three hours and ten minutes of avatar three hours and ten minutes of babylon okay the thing about avatar is like when they said the three hour ten minute runtime i'm like yeah 20 minutes of that is going to be credits because they've been making this still for Five Still, years. I am not looking forward to the largesse of uh, of Avatar: The Way so of Water. Avatar, I'm gonna love Avatar. <laughs> I'm just gonna tranquilize myself. I'm just gonna sit down. I'm gonna find like the most like the, the theater decision it's a that I make. Movie, you can't tell me you're not excited for Avatar: The Way of Water. <laughs> okay. All right, Mayor. Uh, should we talk about the IMDb game? Yes. Uh, Why don't you tell our listeners what the IMDb game is? All right. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performance, or non-acting credits, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. And if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. That's it. That's the IMDb game. That's it. How are we doing this? Are you guessing first? Are you giving first? What's going on? I'll give first. All right. So, you have for me? Um, I, I looked into 1941 a bunch in this movie and, and my research for always because I wanted to sort of talk about Spielberg flops and I've never seen it. And it just feels like such an outlier in so many ways. Uh, one of the many, many far-flung cast members in that movie, sort of far down the cast list, but is one that I love. Uh, it is the late John Candy. And so Aww. I'm going to give you John Candy's known for. What are they? Well, Uncle Buck. Correct. Um, Home Alone. No, even though he's interesting, tremendous. Like he's one so of good in Home the Alone. best comedic what he's in two scenes essentially but like one of the best brief performances in a comedy ever he and Catherine o'hara are in their own world in that movie and it's so good for as much as i like my love of home alone feels like it's what you know how like i never trust that the blank check boys are not doing a bit when they talk about sully i'm sort of like that with home alone with how much i talk about how much i love home alone but sorry sully sucks ass that is a horrible movie um, but anyway, the CGI in that movie is laughable. I am genuinely, genuinely 100% honest when I say that Catherine O'Hara and John Candy are putting on a comedy clinic in their scenes together in that film. They are so, so, so good. Um, Home Alone Rules. Planes, okay. Trains, and Automobiles. Correct. Which brings me to my point that, like, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, I understand why people love that movie. I understand why people think that it's, like sappy nonsense i think everything that he's trying everything all of the like uh sentimentality of planes trains and automobiles is like condensed and perfect in like two scenes of home alone sure even sure, though sure, it's sure. like he's playing a more buffoonish character but ultimately the like 
the sentimentality of like getting and being with your family and loss yeah. and blah, 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 blah is perfectly done in his two scenes in Home Alone. Yeah. All right. So you got two, you have one strike. Okay. So I feel like you wouldn't have put it. JFK doesn't really show up for people, but I feel like I have to say JFK just for you. Because I feel like you want to bring JFK into conversation. I always do. It's not on his list. But, like, again, a one-scene performance. John Candy is off the goddamn rocker uh, in that movie. He's doing Top ten performances in that movie. A ludicrous accent. A ludicrous Bayou accent in that thing. <laughs> he's eating crab meat in a way that is obscene. And he's given Kevin Costner shit. And he says the line, you're as crazy as your mama. It goes to show it's in the genes. It's a whole it's a whole experience, Candy, in that movie. But no, it's not on his known for. So that is your second strike. Your okay. two years are 1980 and 1987. I will say, okay. both of these movies are movies I have seen a billion times for both of them. Like, I've, I've rewatched them a lot. One of them, at the very least, is on cable a ton. The other one is on cable often, but less... 87 has to be Little Shop of horrors it's not he's in that right if he's in that it's a really small role he's in a small role yeah it's a very small role yeah Yeah. no he's in a uh he's probably third lead fourth lead in this movie isn't he like a cop in one of these movies he's it yes he is a cop in one of these but it's not the not the one that i was just talking about he's a cop in the eight in the 1981 That is a movie I suspect you maybe have never seen, and it doesn't seem like a Chris Files movie. This is probably—I mean, it could—it could be because it's probably like a movie for my dad. My dad loves John Candy. Um, it's definitely—I like, I know, I know. It's a movie um, I associate with watching with my dad. My dad loves this movie, and it's not I like Blues it. Brothers, is it? That's it is too... the Blues Brothers. Oh, it is, in okay. fact, I thought—I thought Blues Brothers was like eighty-four. It's eighty. Uh, he is a cop pursuing the Blues Brothers in that film. Love that movie. Great. All right. It's not a movie for me. That is a movie for my dad. Exactly. 1987. Um, maybe also not a movie for you, but probably stands a better chance. Uh, it's a comedy. I think it's really funny. It's very broad. It's a, well, I don't want to go too far into what kind of comedy it is because I think that kind of gives it away. I mean, it's, is it a spoof? Is uh-huh. it, is it Spaceballs? It's Spaceballs. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's Barf and Spaceballs. It took me too long to get to Spaceballs. Do you like Spaceballs? Where are you on Spaceballs? I haven't seen it as an adult. Okay, is where I'm at with Spaceballs, but I should because I used to. It's love it very as a kid. dumb. Famously, and funny. I saw Spaceballs before I ever saw Star Wars. <laughs> um, there's there's some good there's some good jokes in Spaceballs. I will say, and also you reference Pizza the Hut enough to uh, to make me feel like you should watch Spaceballs again, just to uh, you know put yourself. Who was I saying was Pizza the Hut? I don't know. You, you, you've show. called a few people Pizza the Hut over the years, and I feel like it's been because funny every time. Because of the bad makeup that they're given in movies. <laughs> Anybody who looks like they have a melting face is Pizza the Hut. Like, I get Pizza it. Pizza the Hut, right. All right. Good job. Good job on John Candy. Fantastic. Right. So, for you... For me. I pulled up... Uh, famously, this movie is the last movie of Audrey Hepburn... Uh, notedly, uh, there was another Hepburn in the mix. I also mentioned B. 
being on Kevin Jacobson's show talking about the Hepburns. Uh, famously, they were nominated together in the year that we were talking about, 1959. Ah. So for you, I have pulled up Catherine Hepburn. Uh, back to Audrey, though, for a second. Did you notice they uh, used the term funny face in this movie a couple of times? I did it. He calls her, he calls Holly Hunter funny face. And I was like, oh, Audrey's in this movie. Okay. Um, anyway, Catherine Hepburn, who I love and who I desperately want to see more movies of hers because every time I see her in a movie, I'm so enchanted. Um, Have you seen Suddenly Last Summer? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was the movie. I, I was going to say, what's wrong with you if you haven't seen it? Yeah. Um, that's the movie that, that was that year that you were on the podcast talking about. I should, I gotta yes. listen to that episode soon. Yes. Um, suddenly last summer is off its rocker in, uh, in some really fun ways. Although uh, listeners, if you haven't seen it, please just like put this episode down, go watch it. Now, Catherine Hepburn enters the movie in from the ceiling in an, a, basically a solo <laughs> elevator. It's more dumb waiter than it is elevator, but like, Oh boy. Yeah, it's it's spectacular. Elizabeth Taylor's maybe a little bit more downbeat in that movie than I want her to be. I sort of want her to match. We procured for him. <laughs> okay. Um, now, the thing about Catherine Hepburn, obviously, is the four Oscars. So how many of those do you want to throw in there? I'm going to say The Lion in Winter. Correct. The Lion in the Winter, uh, per uh, Ingrid tie. Bergman. It's also, a tie. I also had to pick this so that you could do your it's a tie. It's a tie. <gasps> I'm doing the thing. I'm doing the hand on her chest. Uh, she's so <laughs> she's so delighted. It's a tie. Okay. Um Well, I'm gonna say guess who's coming to dinner. I think it's those are probably the Incorrect. two. Oh, okay. All right. The Philadelphia story. Correct. Okay. On Golden Pond? On Golden Pond, correct. So I've got you three. One, you have three. You have only one wrong guess. I really don't think it's going to be Morning Glory, but I'm going to put a pin in that one. Um, oh, gosh. Here's where, like... Morning Glory is terrible, by the way. Titles just kind of... Oh, is it Little Women? Is it the Little Women that she's in? It's not Little Women. It's uh, later than that. It is 1951. Oh, shoot. May or may not help you. <sighs> Wait, 51 wasn't Suddenly Last Summer, was it? That's 59. Okay, right. Okay, 51. Here's where I'm going to maybe embarrass myself and say like a Betty Davis movie at some point. Is Jezebel I, Betty Davis or Catherine Hepburn? I know that you can get there. This is probably, I mean, like you said you want to watch more of her movies. This is one I'm willing to bet that you have seen. Oh, okay. Um, Very famous star vehicle with her and a male actor. Her and... Is it one of hers with Spencer Tracy? No. Is it another one with Cary Grant? No. Sadly not. Sadly, there is no bringing up baby on here as much as I fucking love bringing up baby. Yeah. Um, one of the funniest movies ever made. Famous co-star. She was nominated for this. She was nominated for this. 1951. Oh, God. I'm going to really embarrass myself. She was nominated, but he won. Oh, God. I have seen this. Of course, it's the African Queen. It's 
the African queen. I don't know why that wasn't like my first guess. Like that's, yes, of course, <laughs> obviously the African queen. Yes. Uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart did famously win for that one. Thank you for, for unlocking that for me. Uh, yeah. Uh, Audrey Hepburn, uh, or sorry, Catherine Hepburn. Oh, and Audrey Hepburn, really. Like those are two actresses where I really feel like a homework assignment is, uh, is inevitable for me. And just to do a lot you of should go on Kevin's show just for that reason. I for, should. Uh, homework like this, because I actually haven't seen that much Audrey Hepburn and the nun story is while spoiler for that episode, not a movie I find very interesting, but is the type of star like 1950s star vehicle Mm -hmm. that like you can totally imagine what the movie is, but she is actually quite good in that movie. Very good. Very good. I think that's our episode. I think it is, Chris. Good job. Good job by us. Uh, listeners, go see The Fablemans. If you uh, want more This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, where can the listeners find more of you? Sure. Uh, Twitter and letterboxed at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. And I am also on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File, that's F-E-I-L. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts visibility. So welcome us to the Wheatfield Afterlife with a nice review. That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz. Bye. Bye.